welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. Jean-Louis, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in having a bit of a diverse conversation. Uh, on one hand, you've got a lot of experience in the, in the missional field and the relationship between churches and NGOs and churches and good works. I wondered if, you know, if we can have a bit of a fruitful discussion about that. But, but we also, for this season, we're working with the, the interplay between faith and experience, which is often a tension for people. And, and looking at the whole thing of experiencing God and how it fits into the context of, of doing church and doing post-church and personal life and that. You know, I was, I was wondering if, you, if you'd be happy to also just go into some personal territory for us to chat to you a bit about your experience of God as well. Yeah, absolutely fine. I, um, I think you're the, you're the expert as far as I know on this, Tim. <laughs> but, uh, you credit me too much, but thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to share my, my impoverished views. <laughs> For us, this is really about participatory and, and, and conversational rather than just a straight Q&A or a, you know, a monologue or anything like that. But there's, there's freedom to dip into your theories, your speculations. Uh, don't, don't, don't feel like you need to filter language or anything like that. Like this is a, it's a mature audience. <laughs> Probably you don't really use those words, but it's my theology that, it's my theology that. Sometimes I have to filter. Um, <laughs> and then, and then that's the next thing is 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 don't um, uh, feel like you need to filter any of your uh, theological or heretical views. We we're very comfortable with that territory, <laughs> and and our list our, our yeah, listeners are also very comfortable. Jono, let me say this: what we what we did in our last season was a very rough sketch of a direction around some earlier experiences, um, people sort of either emerging initial experiences of God or some of you know collection of the earliest ones and we then sort of moved on or meandered on to look at at relationship with church and some of their deconstruction uh, and what had kind of been happening to them to bring them to their current space and then that was kind of the third point that we touched on was where were they where do they find themselves now um, and we're wanting to refine that a little bit towards where are you now but I think to Try and maintain the tie between the early emerging experiences and touching base on what are the current day experiences of God? What does it look like to be in current relationship with God? And I know some of this language is, is you know, sometimes overly loaded, etc. And we'll just navigate through that. Mm. And so as Tim said, it's not to be prescriptive in direction, but it does help to have a bit of a theme that we can aim at. So if you're kind of comfortable with that direction, we could sort of kick off there and prompt you with some specific questions how does that sound good yeah good do you want to kick us off steve <laughs> since 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 i i feel like i feel like i i know genre and i might not um necessarily kick off with questions that would would be helpful for the audience in terms of leading yeah no worries genre happy with that as well we'll uh, get to know each other as we go <laughs> yeah sounds good so thanks, Jean-Ray, for joining us for this conversation. Um, these ongoing conversations are so important um, to touch base with just real people living in real lives, real situations, but somehow holding on to this relational tension of connection with God, self, and others is very much our paradigm. 
that I'm not trying to thrust on you, but we're just grateful that you've accepted the invite to, to have this kind of conversation with us. And so we'd love to hear um, just a little bit of your background, perhaps kind of a short idea of where you come from, um, and would then love to explore anything you're happy to share with us around initial experiences of God, what was it like, you know, the, the language is quite loaded, coming to faith, etc. but anything specifically around those, the experiential side of what it is to connect with God, early experiences, moments, um, all that sort of wonderful stuff. I uh, would love to hear from you as we get going on, on that direction. You know, just a bit about me. I was, uh, I'm, I'm married, I got four kids. I don't know if that, uh, how much that affects my view of life. Probably a lot. <laughs> um, grew up in a home that was uh, strongly Christian evangelical, although questioning, not, not definitely not run of the mill, you know, you know, fitting, we didn't really fit the mold. And that's probably been, been my experience of most of my life. And sometimes that's refreshing and sometimes it's quite painful. And I think that was in, in many ways, definitely politically in the political climate we were in. We mixed, we mixed very freely with all races, uh, which wasn't the normal way white people live. But also theologically, I definitely taught to question at least much more than, than the average evangelical questioned. Uh, I remember saying as a, as a teenager, you know, oh, I think it's fine to question anything except the Bible. Um, and then coming to a point of going, I think it's fine to question the Bible too, but but yeah, I definitely I think uh, I would credit my parents with being influenced somewhat by the hippie movement, <laughs> and uh, in that way too, I suppose, in terms of being a little bit more of a free thinker than might be expected as from a church person. Um, I think early experiences of God, I I made a commitment to Christ when I was two almost three um and i still remember it. it's one of those those quite distinct memories for me my mom my mom was actually great with bible study she would a little black hard covered book and i would draw pictures while she'd tell me bible stories and we'd do our bible bible study every day and i think i can really credit her with a lot of my my early bible knowledge um but she would ask me, do you want to accept Jesus into your heart? And I always said, no, um, and I would hide. And I hid under the bed. I did all these things. And I, my memory, and it's probably more sort of uh, prime, primordial, what's the word? Um, early, early memories, emotional memories are actually a fear of the consequences of committing my life to Christ which has actually in some ways, I think, been part of my experience all the way through the wrestling. I was named after John the Baptist. So the Jean part of my name is from John, Jean Baptiste, if you like. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And the idea of finding the way through the, the, the territory, the, the, the desert areas being the one who's not popular you know the, the john's the one who speaks against king herod and his marriage to Herodias and gets his head chopped off you know he's this mad guy in the desert who wears camel hair and 
and eats locusts and honey. And in a sense, the, the role of the prophet, I think I embraced, I embraced that reality for my own spirituality from young. And I knew that that's not an easy journey. And I was afraid of it from when I was young. Um, and that's come back to me. Something I was thinking about the other day um, is just a time when I was, I think I must have been about two years out of school, maybe a year out of school. And I was I was just in kind of agony and in prayer just about some things. And I was out on my parents' trampoline, which Tim will remember. Many memories on trampoline. Yeah, I was literally face down. It was nighttime. I was praying. And I had something of a vision it wasn't you know like I was caught up in but there were fairly distinct pictures in my mind and I think the wrestling at the time was God what do you want me to do in life and I'd had the sense of mission calling and as kind of fought against it I'll do anything I will not be a missionary but anything else God you know and then and then getting the point of okay if you want me to be a missionary whatever that means I'll do that but just the one place I will not go is to India I, I, I'm laughing because I because I because I know some of the story ahead <laughs> <laughs> you know you know Tim how, how much of time I've spent in India um, and how much it's shaped my thinking um, but I had this, this sort of picture in that space of heaven probably you know typical of what what one would imagine from reading revelation and this place in heaven where the martyrs are and then seeing myself there and going i'm not going to be a martyr why why would i be with the martyrs and also wrestling with that and it came to me the other day the thought of um and just stop me if i'm talking too long but but you know what does that mean perhaps it's very unlikely I would ever be in a place where somebody would actually come and shoot me for my faith or chop my head off. But it, in some ways, I found the what I would call the prophetic call to speak out against what's wrong, what's unjust, what's what's ungodly, what's what lacks integrity. You know, that that martyrdom, in a sense, comes as the price of that. That. And this has been experienced in my career and other places where when you speak out too much, you find you get ostracized, you get made the enemy, people spread rumors about you, people threaten you. And it's a very uncomfortable place to be sometimes. And then you then you can bring back into being the most popular person for some time. And that's definitely where, you know, where I've been sometimes where everybody loves your teaching and everybody laps it up and, and and then there comes a point at which you pay the price for for being pig-headed and digging your heels in on on things that matter to you. So I suppose, yeah, you know, my experience of faith and my and my experience of God in all this has been so much a a mix of joy and pain. And I think I've often have used this example when I've done funeral sermons and things like this. But when you've when you've had a very bitter experience then what is sweet tastes sweeter against the backdrop of the bitterness or a very painful experience. And then the joy is greater because, because you don't, when joy, when happiness is just normal and everything's going well, you don't, it just becomes everyday life. And sometimes you need, you need to really go through some, some emotional, physical pain even 
to come to a point of really the heightening of the, the experience of joy or even of the presence of God, that the presence of God is sweet when, you know, think of like St. John of the Cross and the whole, his, his writing on the dark night of the soul. When we've experienced the lack of God or the absence of God, then this is my interpretation, then the presence of God is sweeter. When we've experienced a lot of emotional pain, rejection, etc., then the provision of God is is sweeter. And I think there's been a lot of swinging for me backwards and forwards, sometimes into, you know, heartbreak and despair, and then and then I find God in that, and that presence is very sweet. Um, but other times when I'm just somebody asked me last night, "How's your prayer life?" and I said, yeah, "I think like like the psalmist, eh? It's it's a lot of." anger and break the teeth of my enemies <laughs> it's not always like that but at the moment it feels a bit like that like just dealing with your stuff you know stuff inside you and and not censoring it for god but just oh, this is where i am god and help me to make sense of it. so yeah i mean those are some random thoughts from me but that's awesome thank you I'd, I'd love it if, if you're happy to kind of give us permission to explore a bit. I'd love to ask a couple of questions about some of the experiences you brought up, if you're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. There might be, there, there are, I mean, I've, I've referred in some ways to things which, some of which I'm actually not free to talk about. So there might be some things I might just say I'm, I'm not able to talk about that, but there are other things I, that I would be able to. Sure, That's fine. thank you for that. No problem. And very happy to, to move around where you're comfortable. And also, you know, if we kind of move to a production phase, we'll edit around um, things in terms of your comfort level of what you're happy to go out there. I'm, I'm interested in this, the, the early experiences, this fear experience that you speak of in terms of the, you know, the invitation you talk about your mom offering around the, you know, do you want to accept Christ into your heart invitation? Um, you know, it made me think of, I can remember very distinctly as a young boy of about 10, 9, 10, 11, around that age, there was a hymn we used to sing at school and it progressed from sort of um, the baby Jesus and then second verse was something else. And, and the fourth verse was a, a very distinctive, Lord, I give my life to you. And I remember at that sort of age going, sure, I'm not going to sing this <laughs> because um, I, I am, I'm not sure if I can, but just you now when you talked about that, there was something of resonance there. And, and so I'm not trying to suggest our stories are similar, but it just piqued my interest because I was fearful to, to sing that because it felt like a heartfelt um, promise, you know, to be made of actually, you know, the, the, the words were Lord Jesus Christ, I give my life to you. I mean, that's, it can't be clearer than that um, <laughs> for a nine, 10 year old. And so I was just fascinated, uh, you know, either from memories of that time or a bit later on in reflection. Was there any sense of, of what was happening within you as, as such a young child around that fear and, and where it was coming from and any sort of processing around what that meant, um, specifically you know, with the, the interaction with God? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because obviously it's, it's very hard to remember anything very clearly from when you too. <laughs> but and so I say it's more it's it's more the sense of the emotion when when my mom or whoever would say, Do you remember this happened? And I I, I think I do remember and I, and this feeling wells up inside me. But 
I think one of the things which one of the themes, you know, they always say a, a preacher, a pastor has, or I suppose anybody has one sermon and, and you preach it in many different ways through your life or through your, whether you're preaching the pulpit or whether you're talking, it's, it's the sort of the, the dominant themes of your thinking and your experience. But discipleship is one of those. The sense of discipleship being like sort of Boniface's cost of discipleship idea, which is basically, you know, what Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. It, actually, to say, you know, the, the revival preachers popularized the, the thing, well, just slip up your hand and come to the front. But the sense of, no, you know, Jesus actually, Jesus chases people away. He says, no, no, you can't come on. No, he discourages people. And it's a sense of like, you know, if you want to take this road, hey, it, you got to, this is a, this is the real thing. And and I think maybe like you, Steve, it was, I mean, you saw it, uh, you, you, you heard it in the song. You're like, I'm not just singing this because it's nice words and nice tune and everybody's singing it. You're like, hey, can I actually, you know, you, you think about the words and you go, can I actually commit myself to that? I mean, I still remember with my my eldest daughter, and she was also two, maybe three. And she asked us, we were traveling down from PE to Cape Town in the car. And she said, well, how do I become Jesus' friend? So we said, well, you need to ask him. And then, you know, in her car seat there, she closed her eyes. She says, Jesus, I want to be your friend. Please, will you come into my heart? So then I said, you need to... You need to also say sorry for the bad things you've done and ask him, you know, to help you not, not to do that. And then she gave me a look, hey, like, I'm, I'm not doing that. You're, you know, I didn't know that was part of the deal. <laughs> kind of thing. And then a, a, probably half an hour later, she, she had wrestled with us in her little two-year-old brain. And she, and she said, Jesus, please, um, you know, I'm sorry for the bad things I do. And please help me not to be bad. Yeah, we got to take seriously the words we say and the and the path we get onto because I think it's Christianity's been sold very cheap. And the result is we have so much fake, fluffy, so <laughs> you know, rubbish stuff that comes out of our churches. That it's just like and, and then we make it all about the the Christian experience is all about the church experience. And that's not the way Jesus was, not the way discipleship is in scripture. It's about you pick up your cross, you follow him to death, and none of us are very good at that. But but at, at least we have to accept that's the road we're on. That's as I see it. <laughs> no, thank you, John. Ray. That's that's uh, that's absolutely fascinating in your reflection around that. And and if I'm hearing you correctly, you're talking about this theme that has has kind of I don't want to say followed you. I don't so much necessarily want to personify it. It's not what I'm hearing you saying, but it has been there within your life sort of throughout this idea of taking seriously the call and, and almost sort of measuring the cost as you go as you mentioned that 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 theme the name you know named after john the baptist the prophetic sense the prophetic sense of calling is there a differentiation for you between kind of like the name the giving of the name the recognizing what the name means as as a theme is that something that you'd just internalized and that you'd wrestled with in your early years or was there some felt sense of of god's calling to that and you wrestling with god's calling and there being some kind of synergy between the name i don't know if the question's clear but i'm just wondering if they you know if they 
if we can just unpack that as an experience or a process. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, again, it's very hard to think back to when I was a young child. But my growing sense of who I am and my call, if you like, definitely the sense of John the Baptist was very, uh, very strong. The sense of being a prophet, not in a nice way. You know, prophecies kind of in, in our charismatic tradition is very, you know, like the prophets are very, uh, you know, like Paul sort of implies it's the greatest of the gifts and, you know, this and it's all very nice. But I think prophecy in the, in the biblical sense is very raw, very hard. And I, I picture the prophet as having kind of wild hair and rags and, and everybody were trying to kill them all the time, throw them into pits. I mean, I, I don't think that's how I am. I think, you know, mostly I dress okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try and have some social graces. But there is that under, <laughs> underlying sense of you got you got to be true to what's right in, in the sense of that's what God is saying. But the sense of it's so easy to be manipulated into just going with the flow. And it's so hard to stand against it. What, what I was going to say is I think the other thing we have to be so conscious of is this is is the concept of grace. And definitely grace is something I've understood more and more. I would say uh, I've said grace can't be really understood without an understanding of sin. Because otherwise, what is it? You know, what what are you freed from? What do, what are you given life in in um contrast to but i think it's maybe not just sin so much as failure which is broader and and i suppose we become certainly for me i become very at, at many times in my life very keenly aware of my own failures and then i think and that's when you you rest in the grace of god so it's not even the the sense of prophetic calling or the sense of discipleship being radical again sort of quoting Bonhoeffer there is not an arrogant thing that says yeah I've got it right you know the rest of you wishy-washy bunch because I think we have to become so conscious we in, if we honest with ourselves we become deeply conscious of our own failures and that's failures you know in terms of our thinking in terms of our words in terms of our attitudes and our actions and the way we treat people and you know and just we are failures in so many ways and that characterizes what it means to be human i think and then to walk by grace is to lean into the presence of god and the and especially the holy spirit and allow the spirit can i say she to or her to um to lift you and uh, lift you and empower you and soar with you so that it becomes not yourself it's it's God. And then you realize, even when I say that, I realize how little I do that. <laughs> but, but that's kind of where we're trying to be, hey, I think. So to me, like grace, grace is not in opposition. It's not the opposed to discipleship, but is the experience of discipleship in the sense of, you know, living righteously, living according to the pattern of, of Jesus. We only do it by grace because we constantly fall. We constantly mess it up. No, not at all. Thanks, Shanray. Don't mistake our silence for anything else other than uh, listening in keenly to your story. Thank you. Well, b between listening keenly and, and and making sure we tick all the heresy checklists, you know, to. <laughs> I'm told Tim and I were at college together. Of course, I'm 
uh, I'm told that there were people there who were quite convinced I was a heretic, even a sat Satanist imposter. I don't know, somebody told me So, yeah, probably. <laughs> you ask too many questions, eh? And you're not satisfied with the answers. So you get in trouble. I'm not sure back then which of us was the more conservative. I, I know that I came in with some fundamentalist type roots and a lot of uh, like painful life experience to work out. But 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 I was amongst the uh, I was amongst the thinkers that was considered a little bit off kilter, I think compared to compared to you still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you you were definitely on a on a yeah. No, people like you helped my image. <laughs> <laughs> That's well put, Sandra. <laughs> you're definitely on the, on the more extreme. But you're one of the people to me, you know, I mean, you've shaped my thinking a lot, pushing me to, you know, to explore in different different ways and opening me up to a lot of thinking which has helped me. And, and, and vice versa. I mean, you know, our relationship's been so fruitful for me. Um, Sandra, I'd also, I'd love to touch on that moment you took talk about face down on the trampoline and kind of what's going on in that I hear you talking about kind of wrestling with this idea of call if I'm you know if I'm hearing you correctly and then you talk about you know the, the kind of the bargaining space okay it's a yes but not India and then that seems if I'm if I'm reading Tim's spoilers well that seems to have uh, <laughs> seems to have been where you part of where you ended up spending some of your life yeah I try, I try not to make conditions with God anymore because <laughs> It doesn't. That's exactly where it puts me. I say, just I don't want to do this. But even now, I find myself doing. My God, because I'm looking for work at the moment or some, you know, direction. Do I do I start a ministry like this? Do I start a ministry like that? Ministries are bad. I don't like Christianese, but a thing, a direction. Do I look for a job, whatever? And in some ways, I'm tempted to go. Yeah, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. And then go like, you're going to give me what I don't want. So. There is that sense of whatever we try and withhold, he, you know, he wants because he wants it all. That's what that's what we and we know, you know, deep in your heart. If you've, if you say, you know, if we call him Lord, then we're supposed to treat him as Lord. We're supposed to give over control, not in the sense of ceasing to be who we are, but in the sense of, you know, what I'm saying. In, in, in the sense of partnership and surrender. And so when we identify those things that we're holding back, it's probably good for us. It's probably good to say, no, I'll go to the Sudan, but don't send me to India. Because actually in that, we're identifying that's, that's what I'm withholding. And it's, it's, although it wasn't painful to go to India, actually it was a great experience. But the, the painful part of that is the, is the struggle of saying I, I'll give up my will. I mean, I think the uh, I preached a sermon once on, and it's come back to me many times, especially recently, which I call "Letting Dreams Die," where Jesus says, "Unless seed falls to the ground and dies, it um, it remains alone. But if it if it falls and dies, it bears much fruit." Something like that. Paraphrase. And that sense of the things we love the most. And for me, it's been ministries and projects I've started or or developed, thrown my whole mind and heart and soul and time into, and then and then they die, not not because of my own doing, but because of something else. Somebody 
other people or whatever who are in control and make decisions and, and that's happened to me now a couple of times where I'm actually pushed out um, and then I have no control as I watch things collapse and then I come back to that yo as painful as it is we have to let things die because unless they die something else doesn't isn't born and when it is born then you go wow god this is amazing but that thing may die too and i suppose that's, that's just also the the trust so okay and another step you know another 10 15 years of my life has gone on something which which feels like it was for nothing but it's not for nothing um because there's there's something greater ahead but but yeah again i, I mean you I'm talking from obviously from where I am right now and the, and the experiences I've been in right now. So get me in two years and I, and I might be much more upbeat. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of is what I'm wrestling with at the moment. Uh, and and just on that, we all have this, I suppose, this desire to do something which matters with our lives. Some of us more than others. Some of us are almost obsessed with legacy. I mean, I, I know that's that ticks all the boxes for me. And saying, you know, I'll say to young people, you know, what do you want to be remembered for, you know, et cetera. And something I've I've thought, yeah, and it's very much of a, it's a, it's an achiever kind of thing, you know. I regard myself as a, in terms of the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that, as an achiever. Um, or as, you know, somebody who's, what, that kind of thing is important. And he used to say, you, you want to leave a legacy when you die. And then what I've been sort of looking at over the course of my life saying, sometimes I'd like to just leave a legacy that would last to the end of my life. And then I'm thinking it would be great to leave a legacy that would last a year. <laughs> you know, I might be, what I've done might be remembered or will be remembered for many years, but might still remain. And then I'm going... Sometimes I think maybe the lesson from from the spirit is that we live today and we do what we do today in obedience to God as best as we, we can. There might be nothing left of it tomorrow. It might have to die. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. And that's, I suppose, in a sense that for me anyway, or people like me, the, the ultimate sense of trust to say, and I'm struggling with it. I haven't, I haven't landed there. But God, let me trust you for today and trust that even if I watch everything that I worked for crumble, I, that you're still doing something and that, that you're doing something with me and it doesn't matter because it's, it's about my relationship with you and my walk with you. And I don't mean relationship in the sense of nice fuzzy feelings, but as as you are molding me, changing me, breaking me, shaping me in this, and as I allow you to, then I become the person you want me to be, and the seeds that die bear fruit. So yeah, and that's some of my thoughts on on the struggle of life. Yeah, I, I know when you speak about that genre, you you speak as someone that has invested years into building an organization that has got quite a large scope so it, it, it's not it, it's not an easy thing you know it's not an easy thing to curate a, a, a you know a, a growing organization and then basically you know 
to to lose it and i know that this is this isn't you know we can't go into details it's it, that's not something that we can go into um but there's definitely there's something that you mentioned earlier where there's almost an interplay between the the experience of god and the experience of church and then i guess there's the experience of doing ministry and and service and and i'm quite aware that the notion of of just doing good and just doing an organization is often collapsed you know in the same way that the experience of god is collapsed into church the missional activity of god the the the, the presentness of God out there in the world is also often collapsed by the church and by people into church into these into these ministries. I, I don't know if that's if that's too abstract a statement for, for me, but I'd I'd love to just explore that a little and get get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts on that. It's been interesting now for me contrasting my thoughts because I'm I mean I'm an ordained minister and now until pastor until recently I've been in a church and I look at the church from the inside as being part of the establishment and have concerns and then contrasting to that the fact that I'm now outside of the church I'm still a member of a church but I'm not I'm not part of the establishment in the sense I'm not in a I'm not a pastor of a church so I have no vested interest in the structure you know the church is not paying me a salary or anything um and that actually that actually frees you up to think more honestly, I suppose, about it. Not that I wasn't honest before, but I, I, even from childhood, I think, particularly from my teenage years, I've, I've been disturbed by the, how did you put it, Tim, the collapsing, collapsing of Christianity into the church. And maybe, maybe it comes down to this, you know, what is the kingdom? And we study this in theology. So for, from a Catholic perspective, the kingdom is the church although I'm very influenced by Catholicism in many ways, certainly not uh, not in that sense. The kingdom is certainly not the church. The kingdom is a way, maybe, maybe it's the church in the broader sense of what church means, but in terms of what we often mean by church being the, the service on the Sunday, your, I mean, the kingdom of God is so far removed from that. And I look at one of, one of those real thematic or important themes if you like, in scripture is for me is the Sermon on the Mount as as kind of the core of Jesus' teaching of how we are to live as as his disciples. And there's not even a hint in there of what we regard as church. You know, the fact that it's called the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> maybe the word sermon is about the only commonality. But the, the kind of radical life we're supposed to live is absolutely transformational in society but then what we do is we've got this this institution called the church which takes money so therefore we need to treat, uh, preach about tithing and then we need to get everybody on board so we have a show every sunday for a few excuse me calling it a show but and i'm not saying that's all it is i mean and i'm not trying to write or church experience but but typically and I come, I come from a, a large church, not quite mega church, but on the on the large church end. Um, certainly, look up to the mega churches, and there's a lot of good in the mega churches. I'm not saying there isn't. Look up to that as a model, and essentially, it's all produced. You know, everything's timed, everything's, you know, very planned out. It's very showy, 
And it's not just the big churches. There are a lot of small churches that are the same. It's all very showy, whether it's spontaneous or whatever. I remember as a child, a minister talking about somebody um, and saying she served God all her life. She was a faithful servant of God. Uh, she played the organ in the church. And it struck me, I must have been a teenager. It struck me, I thought, Yo, I'm not saying it's wrong to play the organ in church or the or, you know, or guitar or whatever. Does that, is that what to serve God means? And nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus say, you know, go out and play musical instruments in church. You know, to serve God is to live a transformational life in society, to treat people and things and money and yourself in a way that is just completely other to the way the world does. That's what we're called to do, and yet we do. We condense it down to come to church, uh, be part of the establishment, pay your money into the establishment, and you'll be okay. And I think I think it's so deeply subconscious. I don't think we any of us are trying to do it. But I think it's got to be shaken up. And I think the massive exodus from church, something I've been looking at a lot recently, why are, I would say, half of Christians not not attending church regularly, uh, not just that it, but they've decided not to. They've left the church. And and you ask them the questions, and there's a lot of things, but I, I guess a lot of it comes down to it's not relevant, it's not meaningful, it's a club, um, it's very hypocritical, and it's very judgmental. I think that the church in its current form cannot survive. I think there's got to be some radical rethinking. It might survive, you know, a couple of hundred years in, in dwindling down, but we've got to go back to... We've got to actually look and say, once again, how are we called to live in this world and what does discipleship look like apart from attending a show on a Sunday and paying your money? And there's massive. The other thing I realize about churches, and even the healthiest churches, is there's massive power play in churches. It's like it's a breeding ground for power play. And the, the kingdom is so opposite. You know, it's servant leadership. And I, I repeatedly just see power play in churches. Um, and people deny it. Although I, I tend to say Jesus never spoke of servant leadership. He spoke of, 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 of servanthood, and we meet him halfway and call it servant leadership. But, I mean, that's that's a little bit off topic and perhaps nitpicky. I think I think in general we're... Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think, um, I mean, a couple of years ago uh, at the organization that I was leading, I had a new staff member came from a very um, authoritarian kind of church background and said to me, took me aside one day in, in the nicest way and said, you know, boss, um, you, you're very humble, but you don't need to serve like that. To be, You can serve as a leader, you can serve in other ways. And she was referring to, I can't remember what it was that I'd done, but it was really just basic things. I, for me, it's always... I can pitch up at the office in old clothes and paint the wall, and I don't mind if the staff see me like that or, you know, cook for them or whatever. Um, but the interesting thing for me was the journey with that particular staff member two, three, four, five years later, and I've seen it with others where they actually found servanthood transformational, whereas at the beginning it may be uncomfortable, and I'm not saying by any means the perfect servant um, got lots of issues there but the willingness just to be the, the lowest and make yourself the lowest and not and not feel like 
not even feel conspicuous, like, oh, I'm trying to do this to look good, or I've, I'd like to help, but I'm, I better not let anybody see me dressed like this or doing these things because they'll think less of me. It, it's something that's that's always characterized you that you've always been a a, a down to earth, get your hands dirty kind of person, rather than the kind of boss person that goes, "This has got to be done. Let me find someone else to do it." You've always gone, "This needs to be done," and you know what? I'm I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you take the mothers along with and say, "Let me let's do this together." And then once you're feeling competent, you carry on, and I'll I'll pick up the next thing I, I think one of the things that's uh that's that's interesting i i, I don't know you know steve that you, you might also want to jump in yeah but you've you've contrasted the experience of god or the relationship god as the as the fuzzy stuff like the fuzzy feelings versus this real um you know challenging character formation type stuff perhaps and then somewhere in between there's the whole thing of how the experience of God can be collapsed into church. And so in some senses, you there's a bit of a triangulation there in your thinking. Is that is it fair to poke at a bit? Yeah, I'll poke it. I'll see where you're going. <laughs> yes, there's definitely the character formation, the consistency over time and that. But but those those deep mystical experiences, the lying the face down on the trampoline, you know, there's been other experiences like that in your life. Are, are those kind of like peak anomalies or or do you feel like like the pursuit of god does lead to that kind of face-to-face connection and is that kind of face-to-face connection of growing importance to you or are you happy just to see it as the occasional highlight wow yeah that's a that's a deep one if i if i'm honest the 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 more those more profound encounter moments are when emotions are are at a peak so either despair or joy for that matter i mean i mean that that's a whole other interesting thing the role of emotions in spirituality i think is very profound and even in spiritual power i think it's it's important i, I find for instance the more emotionally i'm engaged when i pray sort of prayer faith stuff the more effective those prayers are not not always but the times i've known when when I prayed for healing and people have been healed, I mean, I have not always, but mostly when I've been highly emotionally engaged, almost transported into a different realm in praying, if that makes sense, that's the time I see healing or I see breakthrough or whatever. And I think, but maybe that's a discussion for another day. But but the times of real closeness of God are times of anguish for me or times of joy. I, I do struggle to maintain that level in the humdrum of life, but I think I think discipline discipline helps, but I'm not a very disciplined person. I struggle with that. I mean, I was raised as a good evangelical to have quiet times every day. Uh, you know, maybe 15 minutes is good. There's times I can pray for four hours, no problem, and there's times I just struggle to pray for one minute. I mean, something that's helped me, I don't know if I'm going off track here, but the use of liturgy or, or, or ritual, I find very helpful. Some of those I might inherit from others, some of those which I might come up with myself. I've talked about rituals before as the hooks onto which we hang truth. So when we try, try and entirely de-ritualize our faith experience, which has been the kind of modern approach, and I think postmodernism, postmodernism has 
is returning in some senses to the, the, the use for ritual, you know, etc. But um, actions, so, so I would find, thinking back, uh, for many years, what was really meaningful to me was to change my posture while praying and to pray deliberately, to posture myself and to pray in such a way that's appropriate. So, for example, if I would curl myself up, you know, early in the morning on the couch with the duvet around me, feet on, on the couch, and then imagine God as a friend, as a lover, as an as a brother, somebody intimate, and just and just speak that way to God. And then there would come the time to go, you know what, now I need to get on flat on my face or on my knees, and now God is not my friend. God is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And I, I see him in that sense. I recognize him in that sense. Um, and then I speak to him in that way. And then sometimes there would come the time when God is the spirit, the, the power, and, and and I get up and I walk and I claim and I call, you know, for things. Again, it's the way I visualize and it's the way the way I posture myself. I found things like genuflecting, you know, making the sign of the cross, um, meaningful in terms of opening and closing prayer times. Yeah, you know, those those things and the having grown up charismatic um and being for many years in independent charismatic churches, those things are kind of no-nos. And then discovering discovering the richness in that. And that's also, you know, it comes out of church, but, yeah, I can't necessarily – I don't know if I'm making sense in this. But um, those things have, have become you – know, maybe, maybe what I'm saying is I think what ritual and, – and in a sense even church – and especially the more traditional churches where you, you are going through the actions, whether it's the Eucharist or whatever, it, it's a bit like a dance and you know the steps and you interact with, you dance with God through that. Whereas if you don't know any dance steps, maybe a sort of modern kid who just pops up and down at the disco or whatever. No, we don't call them discos anymore, whatever they are now. There's not much skill or rhythm to that. And so sometimes our, our whole experience of God is is depleted because we don't have we don't have the the of the symbol. So I think what that but the dance can just be can be meaningless, you know, like you're at a dance class and it's some some girl that you just landed up with and you're just trying to do the waltz. Or it can be intimate, where where we start to interact with with symbols and liturgy, but, but, you know, in a way that actually is meaningful in, in our relationship with God. And I think sometimes where I'm going with that is that holds us. So, so when we're in a place of anguish or joy, it's natural to turn to God or it can be and really experience him or her closely. Um, but the other times in which what we essentially need is discipline, but rhythm, not discipline in the sense of you know, whip something to hang on to which enables us to meaningfully emotionally engage yeah i think i went way off topic there but i mean those are some of my thoughts and i and i think and i think ritual in church and all of that i think is very valuable but it must have its place and it shouldn't be confined to sunday morning shows you know <laughs> if it could be also the way we live in and this is you know tim you're interested in, in 
monasticism and mysticism. I think it's also sometimes the, the rhythm, but then the rhythm or, or, or the dance um, comes out of the church walls into into 24-7 life. I think that's a lot of what uh, monasticism or mysticism does, and I think that's very valuable. I love that. Um, I, I really enjoy this couple of imageries, the imageries, jeepers. It's a couple of images that just sort of jump out for me and, and where you ended with this, this picture of the dance and how you describe. I was kind of thinking, thinking this through as, you, as, you're, as you're saying it. The idea of dance as vehicle for connection with the partner or the idea of connecting with just the actual dance. As you said, you can go and do the pop up with anyone on a Friday night at dance class. But when the dance is vehicle that actually connects you deeper and deeper with that person that you are that you are dancing with, that that seems to be I would I would say almost richer experience. And the other imagery that you talk about in the prayer um, on the couch, um, prostrating face down, um, you know that kind of stuff. Um, I would I'd love to 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 get into a little bit more in terms of. What, what that speaks of in terms of relational connection with God and, and your experiences. And I'd also love to just talk through at some point um, whether there were spaces you found that within kind of, you know, quote unquote, church spaces, um, church's barrier to that, and some of your journey, because I've got a sense that there's, there's quite a rich and textured journey here in terms of you and church, you know, the, 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 the capital C and and got moving through different places, denominations to where you are now. Yeah, I, this has been really cathartic, therapeutic for me just to talk. <laughs> I, thank you. I, I've enjoyed this. Yeah, I, I mean, so much. I, there's so much, so many in my thoughts. Um, and thank you for being so kind as to listen to them, you know, without, without uh, you know, just patiently and sort of reflect on them with me. No, it's been, it's been good. Thank you for sharing them. Sure. Thank you, Jean -Ray. Yeah, Jean -Ray, just from our side as well, I know that uh, we've, we've had so many different conversations over the years. And in, in many ways, I feel like we, we were moving closer and closer together in, in ideas and closer and closer together in ideas about almost like post church community and relating to God even. And that would be another fruitful discussion for us to, to wrap, perhaps have in future.